The book of Haggai is all about first things first. In the midst of busy lives, when you have a bunch of demands being placed on you, and a bunch of different things that you probably feel like you ought to be doing, how do you keep first things first? How do you even know what the first things are? That's what the book of Haggai is about. Today we're concluding the series and concluding the book, so I want to catch you up a little bit on where we've been and what's been happening in the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai takes place in 520 B.C., and it's written, originally addressed, uh, and records addresses given to the people of Israel, the nation that God primarily dealt with before the coming of Jesus. And what happened in the history of the people of Israel is they had a temple at the center of their life. And that temple was the place where relationship with God happened, where God and humanity met. So if you wanted to know God, you went to the temple. But at a point in their history, they were conquered by a foreign nation, the Babylonians. And the Babylonians destroyed their temple and took them out of their land. But by God's grace, years later, the Persians conquered the Babylonians and sent them back into the land. And when the people got back to the land, they began rebuilding this temple because that was the way relationship with God happened. However, shortly after they got back, they experienced some opposition from the other people in the land and from the Persian government. And for 16 years, they stopped building the temple and started building their own houses, got busy taking care of other things, and relationship with God ended up taking a back seat. For those 16 years, they were in this constant state of eating food but never feeling full, having a drink but never, still feeling thirsty, wearing clothing but still feeling cold. Their fruit never matched the effort that they put into it. They were never really satisfied. And into all of that, God sent Haggai, And Haggai came, and in the beginning of the book of Haggai, he confronted them and told them, this is why this is happening. Because you have left the Lord's house in ruins while you build your own houses. You've forgotten to keep first things first. And any time that happens, there are consequences in our lives that God will allow us to experience so that we will wake up and see, whoa, I've been living for the wrong things. And by God's grace, the people responded. And the people started building the temple. And what we're going to see today is that after 16 years of curse, after 16 years of them being dissatisfied, from this day forward, God promises to bless them. God promises a reversal of their national fortunes and of their personal lives. Why? Because for the first time in 16 years, the people have gone from disobeying God's call to build the temple, and they've turned to him in obedience to build his house. We learn from this that God blesses obedient builders. God blesses obedient builders despite the past, with fruit in the present, and with future restoration. So look with me now at Haggai chapter 2. Those are the things we're going to talk about today and see in these verses. I'm going to read verses 10 through 23 out loud. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. 
and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, considered, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the twenty-fourth day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shaltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So God blesses obedient builders despite the past. That's the first thing we're kind of going to look at here. Because the first thing Haggai does is he calls the people to remember what it was like before stone was laid upon stone in the temple. Now this first word comes to Haggai, it says, in the 24th day of the ninth month, which is about three months after the rebuilding project began. And what God tells Haggai to do is to ask the priests a question about the law. Now, before we get into the actual question, I want to give you a little bit of background. You know how parents, when your kids are really young, you give them rules that you know they won't live with for their entire lives, but you need to teach them certain things when they're young. Well, the church is kind of described that way in the Bible. There was a time when God's people were in their infancy and a time when they came to maturity. And in the infancy of God's people, God also gave certain rules in order to teach the people certain things, even though those rules were never meant to be permanent. And those rules dealt with things being unclean, common and holy, unclean, common, and holy. And they corresponded to the level of access those things had to God. So certain things were declared holy by God, certain foods, certain instruments, priests even, and they were, could be used in temple service and could draw near to God. There were other things that were called common, and they were not condemned, but they couldn't enjoy the same level of intimate access with God. And then there were other things that were deemed unclean that actually had to be removed from the presence even of the people of Israel and were farthest from the Lord. Now, like any good rule, these were all designed to teach the people something. They taught that God was a pure and holy God, and that in order to enjoy relationship with God, in order to be in his presence, a purity and holiness commensurate with his purity and his holiness was required of everyone and everything that would draw near. And now the question that's going to be posed to these priests here is, is that holiness contagious? Can it just rub off? Can something holy touch something unholy and make it holy? In the reverse, can something unclean touch something common and make it unclean? And the answer we see here is that holiness does not rub off. The holy meat in verse 12, if someone carries it in the fold of his garment and touches something else, it does not become holy. But in verse 13, if someone is unclean and they touch something else, it does become unclean. In other words, holiness does not rub off. Dirt does. Think about uh, if you took a glass of clean water and you poured it in the Schuylkill River 
Would it make the Schuylkill River clean? Would you take a drink from the Schuylkill River? No, you wouldn't, right? Because you know, even though that water was clean, it doesn't make the unclean clean. Now, go the opposite direction. Take a nice, pure glass of water, you put it through reverse osmosis, you put it through your Brita filter, you know, there's nothing in there. And you take a glass of water from the Schuylkill and pour that in. Did it make it unclean? It did. You wouldn't take a drink of that, okay? So, holiness rubs off. Holiness does not rub off. Dirt does rub off. Purity and cleanliness only travel in one direction. Okay, you probably get that. That's interesting. What's the point? Verse 14, here's the point. Haggai says, through the Lord, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. See, God's concern was never for clean food or clean instruments. God's concern was for clean people, clean hearts. And he says, these people are unclean. And yet, despite their uncleanliness... They are doing good things. So it goes on in verse 14 to say that they work, right? They offer works with their hands, and they even offer certain things to God. So they did good works, and they had religious offerings. They were good people, and they were even religious people. And these offerings are things that God commanded. God commanded them to do good works and to offer certain things to him. But he says their good works and their offerings are unclean. Why? Because dirt rubs off. There was something unclean about the people that made even their good works and even their religious offerings unclean and unacceptable in God's sight. What was it? Verse 17 tells us. The end of verse 17 says this. In all this, you did not turn to me. God says, you were doing nice things, you were doing good works, you were even offering religious sacrifices, yet you did not turn to me. In all those 16 years... They never built the temple. The thing they still really loved, the thing their hearts were still really attached to, was their own houses and their own affairs. They never really turned to the Lord despite their good deeds, despite their religious observances. And therefore, even those things themselves became unclean in God's sight. I heard another pastor explain it like this once. Imagine you have a mother who takes in a child. She she finds this orphan on the street left to himself And she takes him into her home, and she gets an extra job to provide for this child. She's working night and day to put food on the table, to provide shelter for him, to get him a good education. She corrects him. She instructs him. She sacrifices on his behalf. And she provides all of this for him. And she says, I want you to go off to college. I want you to be a good man. I want you to study hard. I want you to care for the people around you. I want you to get a good job and really bless others with the things that that I've given you. And so he goes off to college, and he does it. He's a good guy. He graduates with a good GPA. He makes some friends. Everybody appreciates him and his kindness. He gets a good job. He cares for the people around him. He even starts sending checks home to his mom with the money that he's making. And 40 years go by, and it all looks great, except this. He never calls home. He never visits. He ignores her. Now, is there anything wrong with that picture? There probably is, right? You're probably all sensing, wait a second. But why? He followed the rules. He did all the things his mom wanted him to do. He even sent her a check, right? He offered certain things to her. But he didn't love the one who gave him everything. And so it is with all of us in the way we have related to God. God is the creator of everyone and everything. Everything we have in life is a result of his kindness and his generosity towards us. And even though we may do good things, be nice people, and even be religious, we've 
loved. We've given our devotion, naturally, to something other than him. This was the story of my life, for much of my life, and it still is at times. I grew up in, uh, I got in my fair share, of, fair, fair share of trouble, and I'm not going to say my family was like religious nuts or anything, but we went to church. We went to church every Sunday at the Catholic Church around the corner from my house. I was baptized as a baby. I did my first penance in first grade. If you don't speak Catholic, my apologies, but some of you do. First penance in first grade, first communion in second grade, confirmation in eighth grade. After confirmation in eighth grade, I kept going to church, at least in the church I grew up in. It was like, hey, you get confirmed, man. Come on, mail it in. You're, you're good. But I kept going. I was still going on Sunday mornings. But by the time I was 18, I realized I do all this stuff, but I don't love God. I love, I crave approval from my friends, attraction from girls that that I find attractive, attention from them, and social status. Those were the things I really loved. And the problem with a lot of religion is that it leaves someone like me It leaves people feeling like that's exactly right. That's exactly the way it's supposed to work. You can be unclean, and as long as you do the good things, as long as you go through the religious observances, they will make you clean. Purity travels in the opposite direction. This is actually official Catholic teaching. Now, I'm not here to be a hater on Catholicism or whatever. There's things I'm thankful for in the way I was brought up. And I understand that not every Catholic believes the official teaching of the church. But the official teaching of the church is that the sacraments actually can make you clean. You can do the religious observances, and the purity will run in the other direction. It's why they baptize infants, right? Because even though the infant's not involved in any way, the baptism itself can make the infant clean. You feel guilty, you can say some prayers. There's things that you can do in order to uh, cover up for those things. But what this is saying is the exact opposite. It's saying, as long as my heart is far from God, I'm unclean in his sight. And therefore, the sacraments, the things I offer, the good things I do, are made unclean by me. You can't put clean water in the schuylkill and drink up. Our hearts are the schuylkill, and they will make whatever we pour them into unclean, no matter how good, no matter how many there are. Maybe you're still there today. Maybe you're a good person and even a religious person. But have you turned to him? Is he the thing that you love more than anything else? Maybe you have turned to him, but do you remember what life was like before you did? That's actually what God's commanding the people in this passage to do. He's saying, you've now turned to me. You are building the temple, and from this day forth I will bless you. But I want you to look back in verse 15. Consider, before stone was laid upon stone in the temple, how did you fare? How did that go? Do you remember what it was like when you came and you worked and you worked and you worked and you expected a certain return, but the things that you worshipped never delivered what they promised? Because it's so easy as, you've turned, as you turn to God and as you start following Jesus to look back on your prior life and remember all the good parts and none of the emptiness. Like I can look back on before I turned to the Lord for the first time and remember how much fun I had with my friends and forget how radically insecure I was. Why was I radically insecure? Because God, God says in verse 17, When we are living lives apart from him, he strikes it, and with all the products of our toil, with blight and with mildew and with hail. In other words, he will not let you be satisfied with anything less than what you were created for, a relationship with him. He's not going to let you get that by giving your heart to something else, even if you're good, even if you're religious. The only thing that will do is a heart that turns to him. Maybe today you're here and you feel you've turned to him, but you, you feel that dissatisfaction still. 
You feel like, man, I'm doing certain things, but it's not returning what I expected from them. Have you considered what God might be doing in the midst of that? How God may be even using your suffering and your hardship right now to get your attention, to wake you up, so that you will see these other things that we put our hope in and that we give our lives to will never actually satisfy us. Have you considered that that's the thing that God may be doing? If so, don't stay the course. Don't expect to give your life to something else and for it to magically start working. It's not going to. But, also, don't think that you can just become a better person and get more religious and fix it. Nothing less than the rendering of your very heart, turning to him in faith, renouncing yourself, and relying on him alone will actually lead to blessing in your life. But if you do that, if you turn to him today, whatever your past... Look at this, 16 years of disobedience, and God says what? From this day on, I will bless you. And that's what we're going to look at next. God blesses obedient builders with fruit in the present. In verse 18, God starts to say, now consider from this day onward. Okay, we talked about the past. Consider from this day onward. For 16 years now, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. It's almost like God has just been waiting to do that, right? Like, and, and even the implication is that the reason he was sending these curses on their work was so that they would turn to him and receive the blessing. But his heart from the beginning has been to bless these people. And that is God's heart for you. If you turn to him today and rend your heart and not just your religious service, his heart for you is to bless but he will not bless you without giving you himself. You can't get the blessing apart from the blesser. The people of Israel were saying, I don't want you, God, but I want the blessing, so I'll offer you stuff and I'll give you things and then you owe me in return. It's the kid sending the check but never calling home. There is no blessing available apart from the blesser. As C.S. Lewis put it, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. It does not exist. There is no peace and happiness apart from God. If you want that, you have to actually turn to him, the blesser, and he graciously promises to give it. And he promises to give it even in this present life. Like the implication of this verse is from this day on, right? It's not even just that your life's still going to be miserable, but I'll take you to heaven in the end. It's even though your crops have yielded nothing to this point, from this day on, it will be different, your crops will yield something else. I will actually bring fruit into your life. And if you've turned and trusted in Jesus, you've experienced this in some way. Like I've experienced the blessing now that I've turned to God of not needing the approval of the people around me that I craved so much. God's bigger than any person. People are dust. I'm dust in God's hand. He just blows and it's gone. And I have him now? And he's for me? And he's with me? I don't need to be controlled by the approval of people. God's blessed me instead of needing to become something to get the affirmation of a woman I deem attractive. God's blessed me with a wife who I can now lay my life down for and serve because I don't need her to be God to me. I have him. God will even use you to be a blessing in the lives of others. You will see fruit in the way that he uses you to bless other people. Now, the blessings in your life may look very different 
from the ones that God has brought in my life. But they're there, okay? I just know they are if you turn to him. There are ways that God has blessed you in the present. Think about those things. Give thanks. Reflect on the things that God has given you. But here's the other thing we see. The blessing comes in the present life, but it also comes in God's timing. When God gives this promise, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they still haven't yielded their fruit. He says the seed is yet in the barn. But God promises next year's crops today because God's always been in control of them in the first place. He knows exactly what's coming. And he says the blessing will come, but it will come on his timing. So you can reflect on God's blessings for you today, but also know if you're in one of those seasons where you're not feeling a lot of those, you can trust that God's blessing will come to you in God's timing and in the way that he wants. Now, these people had a specific promise, right? God is saying, from this day on, I will bless you. And the clear implication of it is, your trees will start to bear fruit. God hasn't promised you a specific job, a specific relationship, a specific place to live. So don't put him on the hook for that stuff and then get mad at him when he doesn't give it to you. God's promised you himself something far better. And he does promise you blessing in this present life, but it'll be according to what he wants and according to what he knows that you genuinely need. Now, if you're mad at me right now, if you're like, nah, man, it's got to be the stuff. I know what I want. I know what I need. And it should have already happened. You're not alone if you feel that way. But it's possible that you may feel that way because you're still turning to the blessings and not the blesser. If you're like, no, no, it's not, it's not up to God to give it to me in his timing and for what he needs. It should be now. You may love that thing more than you actually love the one giving it. But if you turn to him, if you turn to him, and he becomes the thing that you love most, you can trust him. You can trust him to bring the blessings in his timing. He's the only one who can promise next year's crops today. Not all your scheming, not all your planning, not all your maneuvering can control next year's crops today. But if you try to just hammer it out, and you say, well, I don't want to wait on him, and I don't want to trust his plan, I'm just going to work on it and put him in the background and leave my relationship with him in the background, you're going to be faced with the reality that you can't control next year's crops. And you're going to be left with uncertainty and anxiety because you're not God. And the good news is you don't have to be. He is, and he promises obedient builders that from this day on, if you turn to me, I will bless you. Not only does he guarantee to bless obedient builders, he promises that anything we do while turning from him will ultimately be shaken and destroyed. And that's the third thing we're going to talk about. He promises a future restoration. Despite the shaking of everything else, obedient builders will be restored. And so in verse 20, the word of the Lord comes a second time to Haggai on the same day. And the first thing he says is, I want you to go tell Zerubbabel that I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to destroy kingdoms, chariots, riders, horses. He intentionally is pointing out the most powerful things in existence in that time. Military forces, governments, kingdoms. He says, all those things around you, even the things that are ruling over you, a day is coming when I'm going to shake all of them. Just like that. God's going to snap his fingers, his power is going to come, and they will be destroyed. That nuclear missile project that apparently North Korea is making progress on, a day is coming when it will finally and definitively be shut down. The assault rifles of ISIS that they now point at their enemies will one day be turned and pointed at one another. 
and ISIS will be no more. It, is, it even says here, the swords of the soldiers will be turned against brother and against one another as the armies in rebellion against God destroy one another. The bosses behind the scenes, the powerful guys who pull the strings, who can make a command and get a young girl trafficked from one country to another for the perverse pleasure of some guy, a day is coming when the strings will be cut from their hands and they will face the one whose power is greater than theirs. It's justice. That's what God is saying is coming. This cosmic treason, this conspiracy of the kingdoms of the earth against him, the day is coming when he will do justice. It's what, and we all know we need it, right? We know our world needs it. It's why we watch movies like Shawshank Redemption or True Grit all the way through to the end. We want to know, is justice going to be done? It's why so many people were angry when Philando Castile's killer walked free. Where is the justice? Where is the right? But here's the problem. If God is going to shake the heavens and the earth, if God is going to shake everything that's been in rebellion against him, how will he not shake me? If God is going to destroy kingdoms, chariots, and horses, how will he not destroy you? We're a part of that cosmic treason. The rebellion's not just out there among our enemies. There's one thing this passage has brought up that all of us are guilty of. You did not turn to me. Miroslav Volf, the professor at Yale, uh, was reflecting on the wrath of God, and he was thinking about how good of a news it was to him that God was going to judge the people who had killed and murdered his family in Romania. And reflecting on this, this is what he said. Once we accept the appropriateness of God's wrath, condemnation, and judgment, there is no way of keeping it out there reserved for others. We have to bring it home as well. I originally resisted the notion of a wrathful God because I dreaded being that wrath's target. I still do. I knew I couldn't just direct God's wrath against others as if it were a weapon I could aim at targets I particularly detested. It's God's wrath, not mine. The wrath of the one and impartial God, lover of all humanity. If I want it to fall on evildoers, I must let it fall on myself when I deserve it. Also, once we affirm that God's condemnation of wrongdoing is appropriate, we cannot reserve God's condemnation for heinous crimes. Where would the line be drawn? On what grounds could it be drawn? Everything that deserves to be condemned should be condemned in proportion to its weight as an offense. From a single slight to a murder, from indolence to idolatry, from lust to rape. To condemn heinous offenses but not light ones would be manifestly unfair. An offense is an offense and deserves condemnation. We must bring it home. It's God's wrath, not ours, to go point at the people that we particularly detest or the people that we disagree with. It's not just going to be the missiles of North Korea or ISIS that will be shaken. It's going to be every fallen aspect of the United States of America. It's going to be the greed and the materialism and the racism and whatever else has run in the other direction from God. There's coming a day when the United States of America, when the multinational corporations, when the mom and pop shop even, will no longer run the country, when they will be shaken and they will be no more. And there's that one offense, wherever we're at, that all of us have participated in. You did not turn to me. How can we not be shaken? Well, there's one thing in this passage that's not shaken, right? God says, speak to Zerubbabel and say to him, while I shake 
all the nations. While I shake the heavens and the earth, you, Zerubbabel, I will take. He's the one who will not be shaken. And he says, I will take you and set you as a signet ring. A signet ring is a sign of ownership. It was something in ancient times people would get to say, you're mine, and a way of kind of putting your name and your stamp on someone as belonging to to you. And God says, of all these nations that have rebelled against me, Zerubbabel, I will make you my own, for I have chosen you. Because Zerubbabel was no ordinary ruler. He was the ruler of Israel and a descendant of David. David was the greatest king in Israel's history, and God had made a particular promise to David to be God to David and to David's children after him. In other words, David's kingdom was the kingdom of God, the one kingdom that would remain when every other kingdom was shaken. And so David came to stand in, basically, for all the, all the kings that came after him. And just as David stood for future kings, Zerubbabel would also stand for a future king. Because the reality is, Zerubbabel himself died with relatively little fanfare. The kingdom that ruled over him was not shaken in his lifetime. The Persians still ruled, and he just disappeared from the face of history. Until Matthew chapter 1. In the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, Zerubbabel's name appears again in a genealogy, in a family tree that ends with the greater David, the greater Zerubbabel that both of them pointed to, Jesus Christ. From Christ's birth, he was the truly holy one who was set apart and consecrated, having been conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. In Mark chapter 1, a story is recorded where an unclean man approaches Jesus, a leprous man, to be healed. And Jesus reaches out and touches the unclean man. Now what's supposed to happen there? The dirt's supposed to rub off, right? It doesn't. In fact, the unclean man is made clean by being touched by Jesus. For the first time in history, through Christ, holiness rubbed off. The dirt did not. Jesus declares by his word that all foods are clean. And now today, all foods are clean. Eat your bacon guilt-free. You heard it right here. (laughs) Jesus sees a dead body, and he touches the corpse the, the, uh, the casket that the dead body is in. No fear of coming into contact with the dead and being made unclean. And what happens when he touches it? He says, get up. And the body gets up and lives. Who can bring the dead to life? You can't make the unclean clean by adding clean stuff to it. The only way you can do it is by removing the dirt. The only way you can make the schuylkill clean is by getting all the dirt out of it. And that's what Jesus did when he went to the cross. He removed the dirt and the stain of our sins and took it upon himself. And on the cross, he was shaken on our behalf. The heavens and the earth were shaken. The sky, it says, turned black for three hours. The heavens, the the sun, something happened. It was shaken because the wrath of God was coming down on Jesus Christ, the wrath that we deserved when he took our uncleanliness and our pollution upon himself so that we could be made holy in him. He was the truly obedient builder, the first one who truly turned to the Lord. And because he was the truly obedient builder, he was blessed with resurrection from the dead and new life and the ultimate signet being given the name above every name, the very name of the Lord himself. Your goodness and your religiosity cannot make you clean in God's sight. It cannot get you God's blessing. If you want that, you have to go to the place where the blessing is found, or better yet, to the person in whom the blessing is found. You have to turn to him through Jesus Christ. 
And as you come to him, he is the only one who has the power to take the unclean and make them holy. He will set you apart and declare you holy on that day that you come to him in faith. And then he starts to do this work in you to actually make you a more obedient builder by his spirit so that even your imperfect efforts are accepted by God because all the stains from them have already been washed off and placed on Jesus. And you know this, if you're a Christian, how much of your obedience is just 100% pure motivation? None of it, right? Like, you can always find, yeah, 2% of selfishness in there, usually more like 90, okay? And yet God says he's pleased with it. How can he do that? Because the stains have already been removed. They've already been placed on Jesus, and he's paid for them. So that even your imperfect, failing, weak obedience, as you offer it to God, even the songs that we sing here, you know, you're like, I'm kind of still thinking about that show I watched last night and lunch after this and in Christ alone. You know, like, it's a mix, right? And yet God is pleased because Jesus is the perfect, obedient builder who got you the blessing. If you offer those songs to God through him, all the imperfections are gone. He's taken them. They've been cleansed. And he will work in you to progressively put them off in your actual life so that you become a more and more obedient builder and experience more and more the blessings that come from that. And one day, the day will come for the final shaking of the heavens and the earth. And there will only be one kingdom in that day that will not be shaken. Jesus' kingdom will not be shaken in the day when every other kingdom is. Do you even get that? Like Jesus has given you, if you are in him, a kingdom that nothing, no suffering, no person, no trial can take from you. A blessing, a future restoration. He's saying that harvest, that seed that's still in the barn, the day that's coming, the day is coming when you will no longer wait for the blessing because it'll be there. You'll have it in its fullness. There'll be no more. I better just trust God because it's right around the corner. It's coming. It's guaranteed. And we're like, yeah, but I'm going to make sure my next 50 years are great. And he's giving you an eternity, an eternal kingdom that nothing can take from you. Don't give yourself and your heart and your life to something that's going to be shaken to your own glory, to a country's glory, to a company's glory. In a moment, God's going to shake it, and all that will remain is Jesus and his kingdom and the things that have been done for his glory and in his name. Don't let discouragement about the present state of God's house, about your current experience or your current church life, stop you from continuing to build, from continuing to be a part of what he is doing, continuing to give your time, your effort, and your energy to building the one thing that will last when everything else is shaken. Make this worship gathering happen. Encourage and build up the other Christians that God has placed in your life. Become part of a city group. Get baptized if you haven't gotten baptized yet. Pursue membership in a local church. Give your money away generously. Spread the gospel through preaching it to the people around you. Show the goodness of God's kingdom by serving people and sacrificing and sharing what he's given you. All that stuff is what lasts. That's the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Everything else will be, but nothing done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving in your heart to God will be shaken. Jesus is the truly obedient builder in whom you have the blessing. Turn to him and you will be blessed in him.